0: You'll be surprised to learn that there, I hope you'll be surprised to learn that there are 21 chapters in the book of Ephesians, because there aren't. Um, that should have been Exodus 21. And uh, verse 16, Exodus 21:16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word, and we pray that your word would live to us, and then your word would live in us. You have told us from the scriptures that that we need, O Lord, to be filled with your word. We need to hide it in our hearts, and when we do, we won't sin against you. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in these uh, past couple of weeks, uh, we've taken up a discussion of slavery and the Bible, and you might be wondering why I've chosen to take three weeks on such a brief passage. On a, and uh, w- one of the reasons is because there's a lot of people that have a lot of misconceptions about this, and there's a lot of things that need to be dealt with on this issue. And in particular, uh, the left in the universities where your children and grandchildren will one day go, uh, believes that they have a superior morality. And when they attack our moral foundation, the scriptures, this is one of the main areas that they go after us on. And so I want you to have at your disposal at least some means of defending the truth as it is in Jesus and understanding what the Bible does and doesn't say and what that means. Uh, Just by way of review, two weeks ago, we located the origins of slavery, which has been ubiquitous in all places and in all eras of human history. We we located that in the anxieties that are produced in fallen human beings by God's curse upon us. God cursed both humanity and he cursed the natural world. And, and therefore, human beings became subject to this anxiety. And the, the basic uh, chief anxieties uh, are, are the ones that we still experience to this day when we worry. And there are things like, what shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? And then the next anxiety is, once I found something to eat, to drink, and to wear, how shall I keep it? Uh, from being stolen by somebody else by violence. And so human beings have been driven by those anxieties since the fall. And as a way to cope, they developed technologies and cultural institutions to deal with those questions, and that revealed a shortage of labor. And uh, slavery, the stealing of labor of other human beings, became the standard way of addressing that labor shortage. That just everybody did it. The Chinese did it. The American Indians did it. The Europeans did it. The Africans did it. The Middle Easterners did it. Everybody did it. Next, we look at what the Bible says about slavery. And we noted that the Bible employs a dual strategy in dealing with the issue. On the surface, on a surface level, we noted that the Scripture does not prohibit slavery. God never commands it. He never speaks of it as a good thing but he also doesn't forbid it. What he does do is regulate it. And in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has rules about how it's conducted. And those rules, if followed faithfully, will limit the brutality of slavery and will lessen the indignity of it. And in that respect, God takes the world as it is, and he deals with it as it is. And in that sense, I believe it's like other things that God doesn't prefer, but, for, but he tolerates for his own reasons. Things like polygamy and divorce uh, and killing in self-defense or in wartime. Um, and that's just because the world has fallen and there's some problems, big social problems, that are just not going to be solvable until Christ returns and sets things right. You're never going to be able to find a way of living and ruling yourself in a fallen world that is so straight that your heart doesn't, it can still be crooked. And that's what we've been trying to do. We're trying to. Uh, Immanuel Kant said, human, human beings have been trying to find an order so perfect that they themselves can stay crooked. And it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. There, there's another deeper thread, though, which God established with, with the idea that wound through the common life of his people over time. At the heart of the experience of the Jewish people was their slavery in Egypt. And they didn't like it. And they complained about it and groaned under it. It was an experience of suffering. And then God liberates them. And God gives them his holy law. And in that law, God says, love your neighbor as yourself. Treat your neighbor the way you would like to be treated don't treat your neighbor in ways that you wouldn't like to be treated. So, Mr. Israelite, did you like it when you were enslaved? Would you like it today if you were enslaved? No, you wouldn't. As a matter of fact, you wake up every morning and thank God that you're not a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. So don't treat your neighbors that way. And, of course, the Jews uh, tried to weasel out of that. Because that sets up this kind of dissonance in your mind. I can't, I've got to treat somebody wickedly and and I don't see a way around it. So I I, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. So what I need to do is redefine neighbor so that that person isn't my neighbor. So they shrunk the pool of neighbor down to something manageable where they felt like they could keep the law of God. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, everybody is your neighbor. And your neighbor, who's also a fellow Christ follower, is also a brother or a sister. And so you have a much deeper obligation to love a brother or a sister. And so it's just unfathomable that you could love them as Christ commands and then abuse and exploit them at the same time. So what we find is that Christ strikes at the heart of the issue among his people and then he leaves us to work out his principles in our lives as we live them and he holds us responsible to do that. Now Mark Twain said it's hard to get a man to recognize an inconvenient or unwelcome fact when his living depends on not recognizing it and this is true. And this issue is one of the clearest places, this issue of slavery is one of the clearest places where we see Jesus' statement that you can't serve God and mammon at the same time because slavery was first and foremost about economic gain and wealth generation. And it's always been that way everywhere because it's money that matters and it's ultimately money that's gonna keep you safe. Now, any discussion of this issue in the American context has to come to grips with the issue of slavery in the United States. And it has been my observation that the discussion has been largely absent in evangelical circles. And in the few places where it has happened, it hasn't been very well done. And in some places, it's actually been very destructive. And we don't want that here. We want to be able to set the stage for future conversations about these issues and related issues so that we foster an attitude of mutual forbearance and some open-mindedness to a degree and and a desire for truth and love. And if our church is to become a place that looks like heaven, where there are people worshiping together from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue— it must begin with us learning how to deal creatively and constructively with the things from the past that are still haunting us today. So pray for me and pray for this sermon and pray that Satan would be bound and gagged right here, right now, so that we can have the beginnings of a discussion that's profitable. So here's the the central question before us today. Since the Bible does not condemn slavery in some sort of comprehensive way, since God did not prohibit it, In Scripture does that mean that God was fine with slavery in America or are there any grounds upon which we can say no slavery in America was a great monstrous evil and a heinous sin against God well let me start by saying that unfortunately Presbyterians were all over the place on this question in the 18th and 19th centuries the, the main Presbyterian group in the United States actually split in two over the issue of slavery in 1861. The northern Presbyterians had been on record since 1793 in calling for the abolition of slavery, but they didn't actually try and discipline any of the officers or the members of the church who held slaves, and so the Presbyterians in the South just ignored them. The denomination almost split in 1836, and it finally ruptured, as I said, in 1861 at the start of the Civil War. And it was only in 1983 that the Northern and the Southern Presbyterian churches reunited into one denomination again. Now, here's the thing the Presbyterians in the North, who were pressing loudly and vigorously for the abolition of slavery, were not basing their arguments on the Bible. They were, by and large, skeptical about biblical authority and biblical reliability. They were the left-wing radicals of their day. They were the revisionists, the theological liberals. They called themselves the new school Presbyterians. The people who cared deeply about theology and about biblical authority were the old school Presbyterians. And the old school ministers kept saying, look, The Bible doesn't forbid slavery, therefore we can't forbid it either. And you even had Southern Presbyterians who defended slavery as a positive good. So that was the landscape of the debate, unfortunately. People who wanted slavery abolished were squishy on the Bible And people who loved the Bible either defended slavery or said, I may not like it personally, but I can't find a scriptural reason to forbid it. And so things were very dark indeed. But there was one small group of Presbyterians who went a different way. They loved the Bible and they held its authority in high esteem, and they searched the scriptures diligently, and they crafted a very sound biblical critique of American slavery. These Presbyterians existed then and still exist today as a tiny denomination that's separate from the mainstream Presbyterian groups. As a nickname, they've been known for several hundred years as the Covenanters. In the 1600s in Scotland, The kings repeatedly broke their promises and tried to take over the Scottish church and appoint bishops and force a prayer book on them, uh, even though they had promised not to. They had promised to let Scotland stay Presbyterian, and they wanted it to be something that they could control, and they couldn't control a Presbyterian church. So the the kings wanted a bishop that they appointed who oversaw the church, and that way the, the church did what the king wanted. And there were Presbyterians Scottish Presbyterians who stood up and said no, and they stood up in their thousands and said no. And these Scottish Presbyterians sent around a document that they crafted to express their objections, and that was known as the National Covenant. They sent it all over Scotland. It was signed by thousands and thousands of people, and some people signed it in their own blood. And they said, this is a covenanted land. The king is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and the king has no right to meddle in the church. And the king didn't take very kindly to that. And push came to shove. And these Presbyterians armed themselves and refused to attend the churches that the king had taken over under under threat of law. And they ended up actually in a shooting war with the king. And they suffered greatly for it. Now, I won't go into the details. You'll have to come to the class on Presbyterianism next time I teach it to hear those. But I actually was going to do a PhD on this period of church history. It's, some, it's a period that I, I know a lot about and I find fascinating for a number of reasons. But these men and women, they were willing to stand up to the king, even if it meant armed rebellion. And so they were viciously persecuted, especially during the reign of Charles II and his son James II in the 1680s. And this period is known in Scottish history, in church history, as the killing time. Very, very severe persecution. And these covenanters stood up and they said, even if we die, we're going to keep our word to our God and we're not going to bow to the king. Well, not all of them were executed. Some of them were sent to the Americas, to the Caribbean, to sugar plantations, to work as slaves. Some of them were sent to the Carolinas to work the rice fields and the tobacco fields as slaves. And they worked side by side with the enslaved Africans. And these Scots understood slavery from the inside, and they hated it. Their denominational headquarters and their seminary is just down the road from us here in Pittsburgh. It's just south of downtown. Geneva College, just 30 miles from here in Beaver Falls, is their denominational college. As I said before, their nickname is the Covenanters. Their official name is the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America. In 1743, the children and the grandchildren of those slaves, along with others who fled Scotland to make a new start here in America, organized their first church. Now, how did these brave and stubbornly independent Scottish Americans criticize American slavery from a biblical perspective? Well, they noted that in Exodus 21:16, that God speaks volumes to the situation of slavery in America. You see, in biblical times, there were several routes by which one could become a slave. People would sometimes sell themselves or sell their children into slavery if push came to shove and there was a a famine or an economic crisis of some kind. In the ancient world, criminals were sentenced uh, to, were not sentenced rather to years and years in prison like they are today. They were enslaved, either for a period of time or for life, and they were to work off their debt by their slavery. The most common way to end up a slave in the Roman Empire was to lose a war to the Romans. And of course you could be born as a slave. In most of those cases though, you could kind of see slavery coming. You had some will or some agency in the matter. Your choices mattered. But there were also people who got kidnapped out of the blue by slavers and then were sold in the slave markets, more or less in exactly the same way that Joseph was sold by his own brothers. And this practice was called man-stealing. And God inscribed into the civil law of Israel a very strict prohibition against man-stealing. God prohibited it. Now, Just, you you know how serious God is about something, how seriously he considers it when you look at the punishment that he commands for breaking his laws. And man-stealing was among the most serious crimes in ancient Israel. Man-stealing received the death penalty. Not only that, whoever buys a slave who was illegally taken by a man-stealer also gets the death penalty. Now, apply that to the American situation, said the RPCNA ministers. None of the Africans who ended up as slaves on these shores ever sold themselves into slavery, nor were they convicted of any crime, nor did they lose a war to us. A hundred percent of them arrived on these shores as a result of man-stealing. Now, it is true That it was generally other Africans who stole them from their homes in the first place and sent them to the processing centers near the deep water ports of West Africa. But that does not absolve anybody on the white end. It does not absolve those who transported the slaves to America, nor does it absolve those who bought them in the slave auctions, because the Bible says that both the man stealer shall be put to death and anyone found in possession of a person who was illegally taken shall also be put to death and if the slaves ought never to have been brought here as they were then by divine command is it not clear that their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren are also illegally kept in slavery whatever you would wish to say about God's attitude towards slavery considered abstractly and I don't think it's positive, frankly. His attitude towards man-stealing is plain. It's explicit, and it is severe. And that's not just an Old Testament thing. When we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'm glad that Mike read the version that he read because uh, it actually uses the word man-stealing here, whereas the ESV doesn't. We have to translate it a little bit differently. But in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 Man-stealers is the literal Greek word. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so based on this text... These RPCNA writers and speakers, the ministers who thundered from pulpits and who wrote pamphlets that were widely circulated in the 19th century, they then went on to assert the full humanity of these black Africans, which was regularly called into question. Well, they're not people. That's what they were told. Because if you're going to abuse somebody, you got to find a way to make it so that they deserve it. That's what you do in your in your mind when you're going to sin you got to find a way, you can't live with the tension of saying I'm just a really horrible person so I've got to find some reason why the person that I'm getting ready to do wrong by deserves it so they these ministers stood up and they said no these are human beings these are these are our brothers and sisters both as children of Adam and as brothers and sisters in Christ they argued for their potential to learn and to improve and to flourish if they were just given certain basic things and allowed to take initiative and profit from their own work. They decried the tremendous damage that slavery did to the black family because it weakened the bonds between husband and wife and parent and child. And they spoke about the sins of sexual abuse perpetrated by white masters on their female slaves and how it damaged the soul of everybody involved, but particularly of the master who would look upon his own half-white son or daughter and just see another slave, just a piece of property instead of his own flesh and blood. They argued that the brutality that was inflicted on the slaves turned people who like to think of themselves as enlightened and cultured and sophisticated and gentle into cruel monsters whose souls were only fit for hell. And then they cover it all up with a Christian veneer. Most of all, they warned that nations are not immortal. They cannot be punished for their sins in eternity. And if God is going to punish a nation, he will do it in its history, in time then, within the boundaries of history. And they warned that God would surely punish America, both for slavery and for its unwillingness to deal with it decisively and swiftly. Of course, if you know your history, that didn't take long to begin manifesting itself. The Civil War followed. Now, the effects of slavery still reverberate today. We're still living with the lingering effects of it in our nation today. Here's the thing though. Most white people don't really understand that. It's not part of their experience. I know I didn't, uh, but it's true. And, and it, 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 it's interesting when you think, I, I think, you know, I'm a captive to my experience day in and day out. I just know what life looks like through my two eyes. And I tend to assume that everybody else's life looks the same as mine, more or less. And so if things don't happen to me that are unpleasant or wrong, I assume they're probably not happening to anybody else in a widespread way. And it turns out that that's not true. One day, God willing, we will have a community of disciples here who will be made up of a good mix of white folks and black folks and brown folks. And we'll be able to talk to each other from a posture of love and trust and truth about our experiences. And we will be able to listen to other people about their experiences. And we won't just dismiss them out of hand. We, might, we don't have to agree with everybody about everything but just to be able to listen to somebody and say, you know what, I'm just going to listen to you with charity and hear what you have to say. Try and understand how the world looks through your eyes before I make any judgments. One day, that will happen here, God willing. And on that day, we will begin to show our nation and our world that there is a better way to live with each other and that Jesus is absolutely crucial for that better way. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. for You are my rock and my redeemer.